grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. In the year 1987, Irish rock band U2 released its fifth and arguably most iconic and memorable album, The Joshua Tree. I know this because I own the album in its purest form, vinyl LP. There's much that we could or should say about this album, how it is one of the greatest rock albums of all time, how its lyrics and anthems inspired dozens of other bands to write new songs, how it topped the charts in 20 countries and became the fastest selling album in England's history to date, and it has sold over 25 million copies. It was this album that would lead you two into playing in huge stadiums and arenas for tens of thousands of people. It was this album that was selected to be preserved in the Library of Congress in 2014, being chosen for its aesthetic and cultural significance. But today I want to talk about not the whole album, I want to talk about the second track on this album, one of my favorite tracks, a track called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. It's a gorgeous song, one of the greatest songs of all time in both my humble estimation, but also according to Rolling Stone, where it ranks number 324 out of 500 songs of all time. <laughs> Estimated to have been played in 687 Concerts before over 800 million people since, since 1987. The song is an anthem of faith and longing, but also of doubt and fear. It's a song by an author, one who is steeped in religious tradition, but who is still on the search for something real, something transcendent, something or someone to pierce his experience with light and love and hope. Bono, the song's singer and writer, sings this song at his highest register he has sung any song throughout, a demonstration of his longing and yearning in his own vocal expression. Throughout the song, he rehearses his own life in what can only be a prayer. He describes his looking and waiting and hoping and watching and seeking and striving. He places before God his life spent in every corner of the globe. He says things in this prayer like, I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you. He says, I have kissed honey lips and felt healing in her fingertips. He says, I have spoke with the tongue of angels. I have held the hand of the devil. He says, I believe in the kingdom come. He even says, you, directing to God, you broke the bonds and loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. But after each one, he returns to his central lament, every refrain. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. For me, the staying power of this song, the reason why it haunts and, and captivates me, is found in between those two words, I still, and the words, haven't found. Because it's there that Bono makes his home. He is not giving up the search. I am still doing something. He is not abandoning the quest, but he has not yet in his lifetime seen its fulfillment. I still haven't found 
what I'm looking for. Today our gospel reading is taken from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, one of the last books in the New Testament to be written, a gospel that tells the story of Jesus' life in its own unique way. In ancient Christian symbology, John's gospel is traditionally given the image of an eagle, a creature that soars in high altitudes and sees the entire landscape below it. One can imagine the gospel of John soaring above the landscape of Jesus' life and ministry and attempts to give us a different vantage point, an elevated vantage point. In the two millennia of Christian history that have transpired since its writing and today, much ink and blood have been shed by Christians attempting to make sense of what on earth this gospel means. The trouble with the Gospel of John is that it is a river shallow enough for a child to play and deep enough for an elephant to drown. The Greek of John's Gospel is simple, straightforward, limited complexity, making it the first book for students in Biblical Greek to practice their translations. But translating the words and interpreting their meaning are two different tasks that have led Christians into two different directions, uh, into disagreement and debate over history. Protestants and Catholics have come to blows over what Jesus says in John 6 about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Evangelical and mainline Protestants dispute the exact meaning of Jesus' words in John 3 about being born again or born from above. Particularists and universalists argue over what Jesus means when he says in John 10 that he has other sheep in other flocks and one day all will be made one, and so on. John's Gospel has its own chronology of events, its own themes, its own perspectives on Jesus and God and Israel and salvation. The wondrous acts of healing and food multiplying and dead raising in John's Gospel are not called miracles like in the other Gospels, but rather they're just called signs. Acts that are placed on the evidence table to support the claim that Jesus is as John the Baptist says today, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In John's Gospel, there are not dozens of miracles, but only seven. Seven signs to be found in the first 11 chapters. In John's Gospel, we have no reports of Jesus' birth. No demons are cast out. No parable stories are told. And only one time does Jesus even mention the phrase, Kingdom of God, compared to the nearly three dozen times he does so in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. John is sometimes called the spiritual gospel because it seems less driven by biographical history and more by theological history. John's focus is fixated on the identity and nature of Jesus, and like an expert jeweler, John holds the gemstone of Christ up to the light and turns it for us throughout his 21 chapters, showing us all its brilliance and clarity. The reports of Jesus' miraculous work are all carefully orchestrated and arranged by the author to make a convincing case that Jesus is, in fact, the decisive revelation of the God of Israel. So here we are in John's Gospel, right towards the beginning, just 29 verses into this strange new world of John. And today, we're going to meet Jesus in John's Gospel for the very first time. We're going to hear Jesus' first words spoken in this gospel. The setup for today's text is really straightforward. John the baptizer is baptizing in the Jordan River, and he's got some of his own disciples helping him and learning from him. 
And while they're there doing their baptizing work, Jesus comes towards John, and John calls him Lamb of God. He clarifies and says, this is the one who takes away the sins of the world. He tells those around him that this is the guy he's been waiting for. This is the one on whom God's Spirit has descended. This is the one who truly is God's chosen person. Verse 35, if you have your text handy in your order of worship. The next day, John is hanging out with a couple of his disciples, and Jesus walks by, and again, John calls him Lamb of God, and this time, the two disciples John has been training leave John and go after Jesus, the text says. Verse 37, they followed Jesus. They began to walk in the same direction he was walking in. They're curious. They wanted to know more about this guy of whom their teacher had said such wondrous things. They wanted to know where Jesus lived. They wanted to know what his daily habits were like. Maybe they wanted to know if Jesus had his own group of students. Maybe they hoped to catch him debating with other rabbis and to learn how he interpreted the law of Moses. We don't know what motivated these two at first, but they began to follow after Jesus, perhaps at a distance, perhaps they're trying to be discreet. Maybe they don't want to be found out. Maybe they're like ducking behind ox carts and barrels and peeking over low walls and trying to uh, follow Jesus without being spotted. How long were they following him? We don't know. A few minutes? A couple hours? At a certain point in their little adventure, Jesus turns around and sees these two following him. And to them, Jesus is going to utter the first words he'll speak in this gospel. And remember, first words spoken by a main character in an ancient biography are often the author's way of cluing us into something important about that character. So verse 38, Jesus turns, sees them following, and he said to them, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Tete. What are you seeking? You could translate it rather colloquially in English as what do you want, but to ask what do you want is a very different question than what are you looking for. What are you looking for is the question that is at the heart of all theological and philosophical discourse. It's the question that drives the human mind to probe and test and explore and debate and wonder about many things. What are you looking for is the question of astronomers studying images received from the James Webb Space Telescope. What are you looking for is the animating question of microbiologists peering into electron microscopes to explore plant and animal cell structures. What are you looking for is the question behind computer scientists and engineers who continue to develop and refine new models of artificial intelligence. What are you looking for is the question lurking behind every author of every new musical composition, every new piece of art, every novel, every poem. It's a big question. It's a big question of our whole species. What are we seeking? What are we looking for? Putting it slightly differently, what are we hoping to find? 
The question Jesus asks is not a question of wanting or will. There are other ways in the Greek he could have asked the question, what do you want? But here it's far more precise, far more meaningful. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? I suppose it's a question for all of us. What are we looking for? You've come to worship here in this church today. What are you hoping to find? Are you looking for answers? Are you looking for affirmation? Are you looking for a blessing? Are you seeking love, acceptance, reconciliation? Are you hoping to find forgiveness? Why are you here today? What is it that you are looking for? Maybe you're a confirmation student or a high school student and you're here because your family is a benevolent dictatorship. And you don't get a vote about whether or not you're coming to church. That's fine, but you're still here, so I'll ask you, high school students, middle school students, what are you looking for? Are you looking for proof that Christian faith matters? Are you looking for reassurance that Jesus is all that we here at this church say he is? Maybe you're here and you're a parent and you're hoping to instill within your children the habits and practices of being a church-going, Jesus-following family. But what are you seeking? What are you hoping to find here in this room week after week? Maybe you're hoping to find handholds and footholds of faith to use in your daily work of raising your kids. Maybe you're here seeking a bit of hope that all you're doing matters and that there's more to the story than just the daily chauffeuring of kids from one thing to the next. Maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus for years, ducking behind the low walls and crawling behind ox carts to see what Jesus is up to in the world, but you've never really considered why. Maybe you're in the pews today because of the faith, because the faith of your former years has fallen on hard times and you're not sure what to believe anymore. Maybe you're here with us today because the church you previously attended is splitting apart and you were forced to take sides and you had to get out. Maybe you're here because somebody told you to come downtown to First Pres just to see what's going on down here because something is happening here and we just can't put our finger on it just yet. I don't know what you're looking for, but no one is here who is not also seeking after something from God. What are you looking for today? Jesus turns around and calls out to these two people following him, and he asks them what they are looking for. And their response is impressively pragmatic. They aren't looking for a complex answer to the question of why evil exists in the world. They're not interested in a systematic framework of logical proofs to demonstrate the existence of God. They aren't looking to prove their opinions right about a key issue in Jewish life. They're not seeking political discussions about whether or not the Messiah would, in fact, overthrow the Romans. They just want to know Jesus' address. Verse 38, Rabbi, they say, teacher, where are you staying? Where are you dwelling? Where are you residing? They've heard things about Jesus, and they want to put a pushpin in the map and say, ah, that is Jesus' house. That's where, quote, Lamb of God lives. Maybe they want to know where he lives so that they can kind of keep an eye on him in the days to come. When I lived in L.A., there were always people hawking downtown 
or a Hollywood maps that revealed where celebrities' houses were. Apparently there are people who would buy these and then drive around trying to catch a glimpse of movie or television stars doing whatever it is that movie or television stars as they're walking from their car to their house looking annoyed at the people who are watching them going to their house. Maybe these two disciples just want to make a celebrity map and write on it Jesus' house, just in case you know his popularity blows up and they can say they were the first to know. Rabbi, they name him. Teacher, where are you staying? And as if, if Jesus' initial question to them, what are you looking for, was fascinating and full of depth and wonder, then his response to their inquiry here is even more fascinating. Jesus says, come and see. Jesus doesn't give them directions. He doesn't say, uh, it's the stucco house across from the synagogue. He doesn't say, uh, to turn left in the first street, the yellow one's on the corner. Jesus does not meet their question with fact, but with an invitation. Come and see. They want information. Jesus invites them along for the ride. Come and see. They want an address on a map that they can visit later, but Jesus says, let's go together right now. Come and see. And so they go. The text says they came and saw where Jesus was staying and they remained with him that day. And then the gospel gives to us a very strange fact. It says it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, the Greek puts it this way. It was about the 10th hour in the Roman reckoning of time. It was the 10th hour after dawn. Uh, dawn was about 6 a.m., so it was the 10th hour. It was about 4 p.m. Now, why give us that information? Why does John try to approximate the time of day for his readers? The 10th hour, 4 p.m. It was about two hours before sunset, two hours before the 12th hour. For Jews, sundown marked not just the end of a previous day, but the beginning of the next day. The Romans began their days at dawn, but Jews started them at sundown. So it was only a couple hours before the sun would go down. And if that was the time of day you were in, it would be the time where you'd stay put in a house for safety and warmth. It was the 10th hour, which means that if you're going to eat a hot meal for dinner, you'd better get the preparation started soon. Because back then, you could not just throw a burrito in the microwave and have dinner in a couple hours, minutes. It was a couple hours before the end of the day, the beginning of another. For most people, it was the close of business. It was the come back tomorrow time. It was the do not disturb setting turned on time. It was the Jesus has notifications silenced time. At the 10th hour, daylight fading quickly and no way for them to get home and get a meal prepared. They want to know where Jesus is residing. And at the 10th hour, when others would have said, come back tomorrow, Jesus says, come and see. And they do. And by the end of the reading, they have seen not only where Jesus is living, but they have also come to believe that he is God's anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. He is who John the Baptist said he was, the Lamb of God who takes away human sin. And they tell others. And others come and see. And the story spreads. Andrew finds his brother Peter. Philip 
finds Nathanael, and the story grows wider and wider as more people are coming and seeing that in Jesus they have found something that they have been looking for their entire life, though they knew not then. Two things stand out to me above all in light of today's gospel reading, church. First, somehow, in some way, Christian faith makes the claim that Jesus is the ultimate answer to the human question, what are you looking for? I know that sounds really, really, really religious, and that for many people, especially those who have been hurt or abused or upon whom tragedy has fallen particularly hard, that statement can seem so Pollyanna-ish. Christian faith does not claim that knowing Jesus insulates us from pain or suffering or that following Jesus is somehow some ticket into a VIP club of life where all things are made easier. That's not what I mean when I say Jesus is what we are looking for. What I mean is that all of us here, and each of us in particular, longs for some small measure of conviction that our life actually matters that our existence has a purpose, and that there is a reality, a, a story, which is larger than our own experience of pain and suffering. We are longing for the possibility that from our past, we can be forgiven, made whole, set free, reoriented. We desperately crave a fraction of hope that the world in which we're raising our kids will be a world that will be good and safe with ample possibilities and enough resources. Our inner warning sense of justice is activated whenever we read reports of five-year-olds swept away in torrential floodwaters, of senseless killings and corporate breed, greed and police brutality and religious leaders who prey on those they're supposed to be caring for. Something within us screams out, that isn't right. That's part of the deep question of what are we looking for. We're looking for something. We're looking for somebody to set the record straight, to right the wrongs, to dismantle the corruptions, to liberate the oppressed and downtrodden. The Christian faith says that the thing we are searching for is Jesus Christ. And that by following him, by shaping our lives to resemble his way of life, by putting into practice the things he instructed, we indeed discover a reality that is deeper than our present suffering. We, we find a purpose that is richer than our present crisis. What are we looking for? We're looking for Jesus. We just might not know it yet. We just might not believe it yet. But here we are, nonetheless. The second thing that stands out today that I want to encourage you with is this. And hear me, church. An essential part of the good news of Christian faith is that no matter what hour of our life in which we begin to consider Jesus, no matter how late the afternoon of our lives, no matter how much time has elapsed and how little time is left before evening falls, we are never turned away by this Savior. We are never sent home. We're never told to come back tomorrow. Just as Jesus invites the two disciples to come and see as the daylight was fading and when he could have just as easily said, come back later, so too he calls to you and to me and he invites us to follow him starting right now. It is never too late. Jesus says to us each, come and 
see. No matter how much time you feel you have left, no matter how little you have to give, no matter your past, your hurts, your longings, no matter your fears and your anxieties, no matter your diseases or your afflictions, if you're here today, you are wondering what it is you're looking for. You who came to this sanctuary and sat in this space to sing these hymns and hear these words of scripture, Jesus is calling to us each and says, well, come on then. Come and see what this whole kingdom of God thing is all about. And let's start right now. Here at First Pres, we're trying to live out this kingdom life as a community of people, a, a people who may not agree on much else besides Jesus, praise the Lord. We're trying to create a church community here that thrives on service and mission and hospitality, that exalts in opportunities to bless our neighbors in Jesus' name, which delights in the gospel good news that reminds us that even though we're all sinners, we can never out-sin the extravagant love and grace of God. We're here to practice that faith together, to, to make it concrete on this block downtown Flint to teach our faith to one another, to give up our offerings, to learn how to pray, to study scripture, and then to go out and to love this world in such a way that people catch a glimpse of Jesus even if they don't know what it means yet. What are we looking for? Jesus says to us today, come and see. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Amen.